Uh, we are in uh, a series right now in the book of Galatians, and we're finishing next week. So two more weeks, counting today. Uh, it's been a six-chapter uh, six book, uh, this epistle or letter in the New Testament, taking us a few months to get through, and uh, just in time for Christmas. We'll do something different on Christmas Eve here uh, topically, and, uh, and then some other things in the new year topically before our new series in the new year. So more on that later. Uh, but a little bit of a recap on what Galatians is. Uh, it is, if you're new to the Bible, it's one of the 27 books of the New Testament uh, towards the end of the, the Bible, so one of the 66 books of the whole Bible. It is written to, it's a historical letter written by a real person named Paul who used to murder Christians, then Jesus saved him, and now he advocates for the faith, but even more than this, he pastors. He, he's an apostle or sent one and was given the, the special calling or role uh, like just a few others had, uh, to, to, to write the Bible, really, to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write these perfect words down, so that then they translate to our experience. The Bible is historical in that, it, you know, we say it was written to real Christians in a real city like us, in this real city, with real issues who need to be saved like they did, and who in a lot of cases have bad theology sometimes. We're, we're confused. We don't see things clearly. We tend to, to wander and to drift from things that are true, and so the context here is Paul's writing to these churches in this Galatian region, uh, so think modern-day Turkey geographically, in this Galatian region that are, are baby, baby churches that Paul helped to start, and soon thereafter are wandering doctrinally. And so really Galatians, to summarize it, it's actually quite simple. Uh, if you don't know much about the Bible yet, or even if you do, every book in the Bible is about Jesus. So Galatians is no exception. This is a book about Jesus Christ, like everything else. And it's meant to encourage and to realign the church and others that might be asking questions about Christianity or just kind of towing the line, maybe of, of conversion or whatever, but so others as well, to realign the church to Jesus' grace that he showed us on that cross 2,000 years ago when, as the book begins, he substituted himself for us. He gave himself for our sins. So really clear at the beginning what the whole point of Christianity is, it's grace and peace in that message. His mission's clear. He came into the world to show us grace, not just kind of on a vague level, to be kind, though he was, and to show mercy, though he did, but to show it through his death and resurrection. That's very clear. Galatians and the rest of the Bible make no sense if we kind of take that underpinning doctrine out from underneath it. And so it comes at it, Galatians does, by addressing really what it means to be a Christian and what Christian living looks like. And he's been saying in many ways, but this is a phrase from chapter 5, he says, what counts now for the Christian is not the law, not the Old Testament law or rules or our works or some degree of asceticism, but what counts now is faith working through love. It's a great phrase to summarize the whole of the Christian faith right there. Belief in the gospel, faith or trust in Jesus Christ that works itself through our love a reciprocated love for God, but, we, uh, but a demonstrative love for other people, as we'll see today, especially in the church. So a robustly Christocentric faith or thoroughly Jesus-centered faith and life that takes the focus off of us entirely and places it onto him, the Savior of our souls, and then secondarily puts the focus onto other people. So Christians then, by the Spirit, think about themselves in a tertiary manner. It's God than other people. It's Jesus and other people. What God has done first, then, then loving others, and then ourselves on a, on a kind of a third level. And having self-interest through all of that, because it's better, it's better for our souls to be humble in that. It's better for us, kind of an eternal basis. So there is self-interest there. We're thinking about ourselves, but knowing that it's not about us, 
what's better for our souls now, kind of temporarily, but also uh, into eternity, is that we place Jesus Christ in this uh, primary place in our Bibles and in our lives. So here then at the end of the book, uh, as is so often the case with New Testament letters, uh, Paul has been ending with some rapid-fire encouragement, like bullet-point encouragement uh, for the church, focusing a bit more on implications the gospel has for our life, namely a newfound spirit-given power over sin, and even more, a spirit-given power to love. And so we're going to see more about this today. Uh, today's sermon is, is especially the church, and it's a question. We'll talk about that a little, a little bit later. That's verse 10. <clears throat> but before that, uh, some, some words on verses 7 to 9. <clears throat> but today's just four verses, so if you want to turn your Bibles, your devices to this section, that'd be great. It'll be on screen, and actually, it all fit, actually, on the, on the insert today. It's a shorter passage, so it's on that insert in your worship folders, too. If you want to pull that out, that'd be great. And read along with me. So uh, Galatians 6, 7 to 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, referring to the church. All right, so some general comments here on the first few verses. Um, Actually, uh, just throw this back up here so you can follow along. Basically, 7 to 9, and then, uh, like I said, we'll spend a little bit more of our time in uh, in verse 10 here in, in just a little bit. But remember, as I said a few seconds ago, remember Paul's been unpacking this idea further of what counts now for the Christian. What counts? It's not a vague notion of religious work or moral effort, but what counts now is faith in Christ working itself through love. And there are a lot of implications for this, and Peter Carlson did a great job last week of talking about some of them when it comes to accountability and gentleness and the shared responsibility that we have as Christians to lead one another to Jesus regularly, away from our sin and old lives, and propensity to worship ourselves, and to reject and disobey God, to the Savior. And I love what Spence was saying and praying just earlier in Luke 2, when Gabriel announces, actually first to to Joseph and Mary, what Jesus is going to be all about, why his name has to be Jesus, and what his mission is going to be. He says that his name is going to be Jesus because of what it means. It means the Lord saves. And so he teaches, or the angel teaches and says, he came into the world to save people. He's going to, to save people from their sins. He will not be ultimately a rabbi. He will not be ultimately a teacher. He will be a savior. And so when he announces the same thing to the shepherds, it's the same message. Rejoice, peace on earth, gladness to all people, because he's a savior. And he's unlike all who've come before him. Not a teacher, not a guru, not a sage, not an answer giver, but the one who's the answer himself. That's why this is so radical, why it's such good news. And so this is is what the, the, the book has been saying, and this is what in this last section, the whole book is about the gospel. The first five chapters are more about the essence. This last section is more about implications then that this has for our lives. And so here in 7 and following, verse 7, and into or all the way through 10, and we'll see this actually more next week as well. 
he continues unpacking this idea, starting with this strong warning. So look at verse 7 again. The strong warning, don't be tricked or deceived. Don't be duped. God is not mocked. So this is a a tricky phrase. Uh, At least in part, it means that God can't be tricked and grace can't be taken advantage of for the sake of just sinning more, or for the sake of the flesh, to use his uh, word that is used so much in this book. In other words, grace is not, we talk about grace, God giving us everything uh, on his own accord. It's not about works, uh, us doing anything, but about his grace being given as a gift, primarily through his son. We talk about that, we, we don't mean, or does the Bible mean, that grace is a free pass to sin, but rather it's an invitation to forgiveness in spite of it. And it leads us to repentance. Again, from turning to our old way, from our old way of living to the Savior, to Jesus Christ. And so here then, when he, when he talks about sowing to the Spirit, which is, again, a strange phrase, but sowing, kind of like sowing seed, to the Spirit, to the Holy Spirit, to God himself, that we might reap eternal life. So an agrarian metaphor here. Think of how a farmer will, will painstakingly plant and irrigate and fertilize and harvest. And then think, is that descriptive of our life when we think about planting and irrigating the gospel in our own lives and the love that comes from that? So an example here of a, of a gospel-shaped heart and one that seeks to sow to the Spirit by way of gentleness. So this is an example, I'm just picking, up, picking out a, a characteristic here, fruit of the Spirit. You could plug in anything else uh, characteristic-wise, but this is just an example. It's an example of sowing to the Spirit, a heart shaped by the gospel, shaped by the fact that God has sent his Son into the world to die for us, believes that God showed us undeserved gentleness when he sent Jesus' Son to die for us, and that we are then filled with the Spirit, who is, is himself gentle. So stop right there. That's the gospel. That first piece, that's the gospel. The next piece is what it looks like to sow to the Spirit implications the gospel has. So then the Christian makes choices to be gentle so that we might walk with what the Spirit's already doing in our lives. That we might share in Christ's glory and point people back to God's saving grace with our actions. So the fruit of belief, then, is eternal life. This is not karma. It's easy to see karma in in this passage, right? Well, I'll do good and then good will be done to me. If I do bad that'll be done to me. That's not what this is saying. The fruit of belief is eternal life. That's what we get. You guys might do a lot of good in life and be hated for it and suffer for it. That's not karma. It's the opposite, right? Grace says that will happen. Grace says we don't deserve anything, but we're still lavished upon by God's love. So we might have comfortable days. We might have peace. Praise God. Those are gifts. But we also might not, in a physical sense, get what we think we deserve by doing the good. But what we get through belief, sowing to the Spirit in this manner, is eternal life. Deliverance from death. As we were singing before uh, in, in some of those songs, we, we, we have this deliverance from death it's, itself. So then he says, uh, which is a great kind of coaching thing here, he says, let us, in a pastoral thing, let's not grow weary in doing good. Don't give up, church. Don't give up. Don't grow weary, which implies that Christians can get tired of ministry, right? Tired of doing good, tired of putting other people first. That can be a hard thing to do. But he said, and that's okay. But he says, don't stay in that place of weariness. Get back up. 
do good. If you're weary, continue to sow to the Spirit. Again, meaning plant and irrigate the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts, the fact that he loves you. And do good or love inasmuch as we have Christ's Spirit within us. And that piece there, that idea of having Christ's Spirit within us is mystical. And some of you guys have read the Bible a lot, so you've seen it talk this way, and it's really easy to read over that. But I want to pause here for just a second and, and highlight this. It's come up in the series before, but highlight this. When we talk about the gospel, that has to be a piece to it. Because it is. And because we talk about good works, that idea of it being spirit-prompted is key. Otherwise, we just get to ourselves rather than him. And so this is what I mean. Sin, when we talk about the gospel, we say sin separated us from God on every level. But God loved us by sending Jesus to become one of us, to die And to end that problem, that problem of separation between us and the enmity that stood between God and sinners. So that now we not only have, and this is the key, we talk about the gospel, we not only have exoneration and forgiveness, and we do. And that's an amazing piece of the gospel. We have to beat that drum all the time. We not only have exoneration, not only have forgiveness on that type of justification level, but we also have closeness to God. And not only closeness, more than that, God actually dwells inside of us right now by his spirit. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit himself, the God who hung the stars in the cosmos, has set up his, actually in John 1 it says that Jesus came into the world and tabernacled or dwelt among us. Tabernacle was the the old kind of tent-like, temple-like way God dwelt among Israel in the Old Testament. Now he's through Christ, tabernacling or dwelling or really truly among us. But then what's even better than that is when he sends his spirit, that's happening now in our hearts. No more, in other words, no more separation. We call this idea, our theologians do, union with Christ. And and it needs, it's, uh, I'm speaking very generally here because some of you um, know this. But in a general sense, this can be an easily lost doctrine in the church, union with Christ. So that we say it's by this union, fought for and won by Christ's work for us, that we're saved. We, we think about, you know, the, the fact that we're one with Jesus. If that's the goal, then it can't be about what we do. I mean, no one can get to him or, or unify themselves with, with Christ. Nor is it just about teaching. If it was just about Jesus teaching us how to live, he would just give us commandments and stay way over there. But what he wants is this. He wants union. He wants closeness. He wants to unify his actual spirit with yours. That's mystical. Can't totally understand that, but that's part of the gospel. It is ending that exile that we have from God that we read about in the first couple of chapters of the whole Bible. Sin and death led to exile, distance, being alienated from God. And that peace is not just like an idea, on an idea basis level true. It's an actual reality for true Christians amazing amazingly good news for people that want to do good who want to be close to god who want their lives to change it it means everything that's not left to us it's left up to god who came the full distance the full measure to us to save us so sowing to the spirit gets at that whole idea in contrast with the vague notion of just doing good on our own which is not the gospel jesus doing good to us is the gospel, and then through us doing good to others is the gospel. 
So think about it this way. Christians, spirit-filled Christians, understand it this way. Work really hard at doing good, but never take credit for it. Work really hard at believing the gospel, really hard at doing good, but never once think it's from you. That's the gospel. That's the idea of spirit-filled living. It's incredibly humbling, but incredibly joy-giving and empowering at the same time. That's what true, spirit-filled, gospel-centered Christians should think. So if you don't, it's an invitation. Start to think that way. Work really hard at loving, work really hard at doing good, but never, ever take credit for it. Because all good belongs to God, and all good is given, not originated in a sinner's heart. So verse 10 then um, says, So then, as we have the opportunity, let us, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So what I want to do now is, is talk about this last verse, and especially this last clause that I highlighted in, in yellow. And um, I'm going to make a statement here. It might sound hyperbolic. It's not. I think one of the most important issues to address today in 21st century American Christianity uh, is, is this idea right here. As it relates to understanding what the church is, what God's will is for our lives, and where God's heart is. You know, if you ever wondered, what does God want with me or with the world? What is the church? What's that supposed to be? What's that supposed to look like? It's all wrapped up with this, not only here, of course, but wrapped up with this idea of especially loving Christians. Do good to all as you have the spirit-given, I think is implied, the spirit-given opportunity. Do good to all, but especially do good to Christians. The Bible itself, God himself, highlights doing good to Christians over doing good to all. Did you know that was in here? Look what it says. And so without the Bible's guidance here, I think, we wouldn't naturally think this way today, right? And I know I wouldn't. Maybe you would. I, I wouldn't naturally think, write this in here in, in this capacity because why not stop at doing good to all? Why not just say, do good to all, period? Why not stop there? Isn't that better? The Bible says, no, it's not better. It's better to end with this, especially to other Christians, especially do good to other Christians that you know in your local church. And so what we're going to do now is talk about that. Why does it say that? Why is that here? Why, why is there this call to do good to all, but especially look, there's this inward-focused idea to the church here. Not at the expense of being outward-focused, to be clear. Uh, it's both, but it does heighten it with this idea of looking to other Christians and especially doing good and loving to them so that we should actively be thinking about that every single day of our lives as Christians. So I have three things here. I'll go through these kind of quickly, especially the first and third. <laughs> the second one will, will take some time. But anyway, first and third is, uh, or the first one is uh, we're family. What, why do we, so speaking to Christians, by the way, here, if you're not a Christian yet, here, we're glad you're here. Um, but this is, when I say we, this is uh, two Christians because it is here in the Bible as well. Paul's writing to people who profess Jesus Christ, believe in him, they trust the gospel, they're, they're saved. Why are we as Christians to do good, especially to the church? One, we're family. In other words, we're not just a random group of people who happen to gather here once a week, but a spiritual family and a 
body of believers. Yes, who will always have non-Christians here among us and visitors, which we love, we love that. It's a big part of what what we're all about as a part of our greater community of Hiawatha. But still, at our core, we are a group of Christians in God's family together. Or, or a local microcosm of the global church. That's what, that's what the local church is. And families do good to one another. Or they should. And, and I know some of you come from very broken homes. And this is harder to believe. But families should love one another, even after and especially after we hurt one another. In a safe environment full of grace and forgiveness. And as uh, Peter Carlson talked about last week, commitment So as we think about the church, every little tension in the church won't send us running to another one. A safe environment can actually allow for peacemaking. An unsafe one can't because we'll run for the hills at every little spark of tension. But if we know it's safe and there's forgiveness and grace, not not perfect versions of it, but there's forgiveness and grace, it'll it'll create uh, commitment. It'll actually create the, the possibility of having true friendships, which are always messy. So this might be an obvious reason. I kind of start with the obvious one here. It's kind of like saying we should love other Christians because it's the right thing to do. You know, it's like, duh, you know. But, but there's also more than that here wrapped up with the metaphor. And that is, if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, if we share in Christ's sonship before God, then it means that we're family, but with God as our Father. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, as a parent, I have three kids, those of your parents can maybe resonate. But I mentioned a few weeks ago, I was grieved recently by watching my kids fight, or I'm always grieved by watching them fight, say recently. They fought once. No. But uh, they're all, yeah, you know, they're always doing it. But, um, but delighted when they reconciled. Like, it was an extremely, it always is an extremely emotional thing for me, like, like to be grieved so much at wanting my, my kids to just get along. But how excited I am when I see them reconcile, but then just also um, move past that and and love each other. Now, as we ask this question, you know, why do you think that I had those feelings from from and you parents do from a theological perspective? To get back to this idea, I had those feelings as do other parents because God, the Father, God calls Himself Father in the Bible, has those feelings about us, His children. And I, like you parents, if you're Christians, are in Christ's image, especially. Actually, all human beings are in the image of God in this manner. So so if we're in the image of God, we should think about those experiences as like microcosms or glimpses of how God thinks, how God feels. In fact, it's so much the case, you should think about this. Do you want to make God smile? Love another Christian. Do you want to make God smile? Love deeply and sacrificially another Christian, another one of his children. See, because if parents smile there and we're sinners, how much more does God? If you've ever wondered any version of the question, how do I please God? Part of the answer, love another Christian well. Because those Christians belong to him on like a father-child or parent-child kind of level. Love another Christian. When you do, God will delight. You know, and, and again, to tie it, tie it in, 
as a father, a mother delights, you know, to think, to think about their kids laughing, forgiving one another, and giving. Like my, my daughter, Jane, um, recently, or she's always been generous. She kind of puts me to shame already, and like I learned from her in this, but she, she likes making these, she writes graphic novels, you know, so she just makes comics and writes these stories, and will make this thing for her siblings, for my other kids, for Christmas. You know, and that is, it just warms my heart, and, and on the same level, when, when God sees you generously moving towards another Christian, it pleases him. It's not just a random act. God says, yeah, you should do this. It's a law. Here's a, here's a stone-cold tablet for you to keep and kind of throw it on our backs. It's saying, this is what I'm like, and I live in you now. This is a family way of thinking. It's a grace way of thinking of God as father, not boss. But again, don't miss the big picture here. When you think about a parent feeling that way, that is how God emotionally feels. God has emotions. How God emotionally feels when he sees Christians loving one another. Do you want to be a part of that? It's an invitation into that. If you're, if you're an unchurched Christian, there's a better way. We'll talk more about that in, in, in a minute. But the only way to do this is to actually be a part of a church and to know other Christians. And so uh, it's an invitation in, into that. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, the church is Jesus' body. This is a, a deeper theological idea, but just hang with me. This is very important. The principle here, though, is doing good to the church is biblically linked closely with revering Christ himself and responding to his grace. One great place we see this is in Matthew 25. Jesus' words uh, here, uh, in, in what serves as a picture of future judgment, so when Jesus returns, uh, it's a complicated idea of thinking what that's actually going to be like. Jesus gives glimpses, we don't know fully, but this is one thing he says. Uh, it's full of grace, but also full of warning. Matthew 25, Jesus' words, he says, Then the king, referring to himself, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. All right, lots to say about this, but this is the, this is the most important thing to understand, at least for today. And that is the phrase, my brothers, in verse 40, is a reference to Christians. The phrase, my brothers, in verse 40, is a reference to other Christians. For who are the brothers except those who together call God Father? If you're a Christian, you are not a brother with non-Christians. You're not a brother and a sister to those who are outside the faith. You have different, different parents, right? And Jesus says, outside of Christ, our father is the devil. When we're adopted into to, to God's family, God becomes our father. So there are two kinds of fathers we can have. But we are not siblings, Christians, with non-Christians. We pray God will grow his family. We want that. It's part of our evangelistic, missional movement towards a lost world. But as it stands here, it's not what he's talking about. 
Jesus is saying to Christians here, when you loved other believers, you loved me. Because the church is Christ's body on earth in a way that others are not. So to respond to a Christian's need in your local church is akin to responding to the grace, love, and forgiveness that Christ himself offers us through his death and resurrection. And the inverse is true as well, which we did not read here. This passage goes on. We uh, didn't look at it, but basically in sum, he says, also, when you, those who did not enter God's kingdom, are not saved in the end, he says, when you did not love the least of the brothers, you didn't love me. So one way to not love God is to not love Christians. One way to not love Jesus, to not respond to Jesus' grace, is to not love other Christians. It's crystal clear. One or the other. This is a mystical union thing. Again, if we don't think this, it's hard to think this way for us because of that mystery of union with Christ. When we see a Christian, we should see Jesus because he's inside of them. And so then it becomes more clear. When we're loving that Christian, then we're actually loving Christ. We're actually doing these things Jesus is talking about. This passage gets quoted out of context, all out of context, all of the time. To say the least of these phrase refers to anyone inside or outside the church. That's not what it's saying. The problem with that is if we think the least of these refers to humanity on a global scale, we'll think doing Jesus' will is always outward focused because the least globally will never be here. There will always be people suffering more than in our church on a global scale physically. We'll never look inside Hiawatha as an implication for this passage as Jesus is trying to teach us. That's one of many problems with viewing this as humanity on a global scale. But, but here's what it really says. The idea of doing random acts of kindness is less at the heart of God as is doing particular acts of kindness towards the church. That's what this is saying. Jesus is saying it. Paul's saying it. The idea of doing random acts of kindness, great bumper sticker, not as biblical maybe. Uh, it's not wrong. Do good to all as you have the opportunity. But what's better? So the idea of doing random acts of kindness is less at the heart of God as is doing particular acts of kindness towards the church. Christian, hear this. This is what the word of God says to you. If you're not a Christian, hear this as well, but just from an outside perspective, as we talk about what the faith should, our lives should look like. On a practical level, this should affect where we look when we're interested in doing good. When we're interested in helping out or volunteering or serving or working for justice. What other Christians in your church do you know who are in need? Hungry, thirsty, poor, sick, discouraged, anxious, stuck in sin, or otherwise in trouble. Then think, how can I help? It is one of the most Christian things you can do with your time, actively loving and doing good to other Christians in your home church. And for some of you, you're thinking, duh. But some of you, maybe this is a paradigm shift. You never heard this. You know, the, the church needs to have, the Christians need to have this bent. Uh, per or kind of a la Galatians 6 and Matthew 25. And we'll see here in a second, John 13. Again, it, it's so much the case. I want to kind of dial this up a little bit more even, but what I'm saying. This is so much the case that 
to be involved globally, whatever involved means, globally, but at the expense of being involved in your local church is sin. To be involved globally, but not locally in your church, or involved way out there at the expense of loving Christians you actually know in your family, is not just a little bit off, it's actually sinful and needs to be repented of. It's not love, and it's not at the heart of God. To get back to this family idea for a second, if I told you I care about a stranger more than my wife and kids, you'd call me a fool, and you'd be right to. And more than a fool, I'd be sinning against them. I would not be loving them. It's the same with the church. Guys, this is your family if you call this home. Yes, do good to all, but if it's the expense of loving here, we're not truly doing what the Bible's saying. We're not truly at the heart of God. And more than that, we're sinning because we're, we're failing in our kind of spirit-given calling and even obligation to love other believers as a picture of the gospel. So those of you who aren't Christians yet, there's good news here for you too because this idea gets back to the heart of the gospel, which is Jesus' goodness, not yours. Or not global humanitarianism. The gospel is not global humanitarianism. It's, it's cosmic grace coming into earth in that first Christmas as a human being and dying on that bloody cross. That's the gospel. If you think it's flipped, again, invitation here to flip that sucker on its head. Not at the expense completely of global humanitarianism, but that's not what the gospel is. It's not what God wants for your life. It's not the alt. It's not the center. God cares for his church so much he bled for her. And that's the message that's embodied when Christians love one another. And that's, that's who aren't yet Christians need to see. Which leads me to this uh, last point, which is it's evangelistic. In, in John 13, Jesus says, this has come up a lot in our series, it fits so well. Jesus, hours before his death, says this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, that's other Christians, again, speaking to his disciples, so love one another, love, Christ, this is like Christian inter-church, intra-church, love. Love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, so Paul commands this kind of good, in part here, I think, in Galatians 6, because he knows the words of his Christ. He knows the words of his Lord, and he knows, in part, he wants his churches to multiply and to reach non-Christians. He wants them to live loudly. He wants multiplication to happen. Because one of the ways that's going to happen is with the world watching Christians love one another. It's strategic. And so it is for us. One of the best things you guys, all of us, can do to help other people come to know truly who Jesus Christ really is is by loving another Christian publicly, visibly, selflessly, and sacrificially. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians 6. And note here how Jesus links our love with his. 
just as I have loved you. So, so Christian love shows off Jesus' love. We've been saying this over and over again in the series. It can't be said enough. This is the point to our good works, that others might see the gospel as they hear about it. They might see selflessness as they hear about Jesus' selflessness. They might see goodness as they hear about Jesus' goodness. This doesn't mean that our actions supersede our words when it comes to evangelism, because it doesn't. Words are more important. But it has more here, as Jesus is saying, to do with knowing who we are as Christians in relation to Christ. So a community shaped by Jesus' sacrificial love and who especially express that towards each other in word and deed. So that the world says, wouldn't it be great, actually, if that, it's probably happened by God's grace, but all the more, if, if, if um, people in this neighborhood, for example, saw us in public loving one another and then said that their conclusion was, well, they must be Christians because they love each other so sacrificially. They don't take themselves too seriously and they put each other first. That's a great prayer. And that's something we can be a part of. A part of the answer is our lives in how we love other Christians in public, at the parties we're at with our neighbors and non-Christians, you know, at work in some of your cases, our families, um, in our front yards, in the summer at least, well, maybe, maybe outside in the winter, for you snow lovers, uh, in our yards as they see, again, um, marriages demonstrate the gospel. Christians, again, this is, and this, to, to be clear, this is not um, just theory. Uh, a lot of you have stories that, that can, I, I know many stories come to mind where it, this is actually, you know, people who are not yet Christians are observing this and saying, man, you guys love one another. And you're not different. Or sorry, you're not the same. You're very different than each other. It's odd. It's weird. Usually Christianity is very weird before it's true. You know, it's usually very, very weird before it becomes true for people. And that's good. It should be weird for so many reasons. But that's one of them, is diverse kind of love. Christians that are really, I mean, not just saying it, but actually living out the fact that they're not that important. They're not valuing their life that much. They put other people first like Christ put us first when he bled for us. So in conclusion, a few things here in sum. Uh, first, again, this is what this is saying. First, sow to the Spirit, which means invest in the gospel. And remember, the only way to truly do good with the right motive and the right freedom is to first believe the good that God did for you through Jesus Christ. That we, we have to go there. That's what the whole book's been saying. This is the end of the book, the way this is worded for a reason. And so actually, if you look at a couple of things, I'm just picking these out, but a couple of verses in Galatians. One, you know, one says, do good to all in Galatians 6 uh, today, in today's passage. And in another place in chapter 1, first few verses, I guess, I guess verse 3, Jesus gave himself for your sins. Now, here, here's a question. Which of those verses is more important? It's a really important theological question that may not be obvious, but I'll try to make it obvious. The latter verse is more important than the former. The latter verse, Jesus giving himself for our sins, is more important than doing good to all. The book begins with the gospel and ends with implications for it. So if we don't have that in order, 
our motive for doing good will be primarily out of fear or pride. But it won't be motivated by a good God who first showed goodness to us when he died in our, died in our place for our sins. It won't be out of humility and joy, not to save ourselves, but because we're already saved and we're free to love. For the first time in our lives as Christians, we're actually free to put people first. It's not as painful. It's not, oh, I got to do this to be saved or to feel good about myself. We're free because we're loved to the uttermost, to, to hell and back by our God who loved us in that way, and then we can pay that forward. So part of the gospel here is, if you guys have felt like, man, I haven't done this stuff that Chris is talking about, in one sense, good. I want you to feel that. So you'll run to Jesus. He's done it perfectly. And so run to him and say, God, forgive me for not loving that well. Daily prayer. Daily, great daily prayer. Forgive me for not loving that well. Help me to rest in the love you've shown for me. That's first, so to the Spirit. Uh, the second is, show off God's goodness and revere Christ's grace by, as you have opportunity, doing good to all, but especially doing good to your home church, even when you don't feel like it. Think through what this means for your life, what, what changes you need to make, what focuses or foci, is it? whatever, uh, you need to readjust. And with what type of vigor you really need to put roots down in a church family. Because here's the thing. You can't do any of this stuff we've talked about if you're not a part of a church. You can't keep these ethical encouragements. I can't. None of us can, right? You can't, we can't do it. At least not as well. At least we can't drill into it as deeply if we're not a serious part of a church putting down, roots way down deep, knowing people well, so that we can know when they're in trouble and they can know when we are. So it should shape the way we think about with what type of vigor we need to really put roots down in a church family. And again, I wanna, I've said this a couple of times already. I want to end with this again, though, or a couple things here. But one is it's an invitation. So if, if you feel like, you know, you're, you're a Christian here today and you're a bit more like 80-20, when it comes to doing good to all, but 20% when it comes to doing good to other Christians that you know, like if you're flipped on it, then what I think this says is that there's a better way to think about church for you. There's a better way for you, a better way for your church, and a better way for those who are outside the faith watching your life. A better way for your joy, your happiness, your spirituality, in a way that focuses more on Jesus and his people rather than a vague notion of random kindness alone. So let me uh, end with something here. I, I want to end with something that I think is the heart of Christ for this passage and, and for us because these are really his words. Galatians 6 is Jesus' words through Paul, but they're the words of Christ, as we saw in John 13. That's why we went there in part. But here's what I think Jesus desires for us, some of the language in Galatians 6. We'll end with this. Come to me, find rest in my grace and my love. I've paid it all. Believe in me. Then come to my people, my church, and know your place among them. You, like they, are my children, and even more, my body. 
It is where you will continue to hear my voice and even catch glimpses of my very physical presence among them. Love them as I have loved you. Forgive them as I have forgiven you. Serve them as I have served you. The world is watching, and I want them to see a whisper of my love in you as well so that they too might see but ultimately hear and be saved. Love my church.